As much as atheists think, as much as AC, jeez. How can a good God allow evil to exist? With all the pain and suffering and heartbreak in the world, this is something that every person, and especially Christians, have to answer. Luckily, we're not the first people to think of it. So today we're going to look at what some famous thinkers and Christians throughout history have said about the topic, and that includes C.S. Lewis. After all, this is a Mere Christianity series. My name is Stephen Cram, and welcome to My Apologies. An apology doesn't just mean saying that you're sorry. It can also mean giving a reason for something that you believe. For example, if I ask you, why do you believe that Dr. Pepper is better than Coke? I'm asking for an apology. On this channel, we'll be looking at apologies for living a life of faith and virtue. And if what I say offends you, my apologies. So the question of God allowing evil to exist, to get there, we have to actually clarify a few things first. For example, what is evil? What is it? We have to know that if we're going to answer this question. We need to know where evil comes from. And then finally, we can, we can answer the question of how does it relate to God? For example, did he create evil? Why does he allow it? How does it relate to this person of God? If he's good, how do we solve this problem? As much as atheists think that this is a silver bullet objection to Christianity, there are answers to the question, and they're good ones. Some are thoughtful, some are more emotional. We're going to look at both today. So to answer that first question, what is evil? We've already talked about evil in a couple other worldviews we've examined in this series. For example, materialism and pantheism. We've looked at how those worldviews don't really have justification for calling anything evil. And so this question really can't be applied to them at all. That's its own issue of you can't call anything evil. That's its own problem to deal with. Dualism, which is what we talked about afterwards, says that evil comes from an evil power, an evil God, that is equal and opposite to the good God. We discussed that in the dualism episode and discussed why that doesn't quite fulfill all of our questions either. So that brings us to Christianity. What is the Christian worldview? How do Christians see the problem of evil? Let's look at what Lewis has to say. He starts out in Mere Christianity, book two, I think it's chapter two. Yeah, book two, chapter two. We're going between chapter two and chapter three. So in book two, chapter two, he says, in reality, we have no experience of anyone liking badness just because it is bad. The nearest we can get to it is in cruelty. But in real life, people are cruel for one of two reasons, either because they are sadists, that is, because they have a sexual perversion, which makes cruelty a cause of sensual pleasure to them, or else for the sake of something they are going to get out of it, money or power or safety. But pleasure, money, power, and safety are all, as far as they go, good things. So he talks about in this that badness for the sake of badness doesn't really exist. And this is part of the problem of dualism, that there can't be a completely evil God who just loves evil. Rather, our experience of badness, which is what Lewis is calling evil, is that people are bad or they do evil because they're seeking some kind of perceived good. The goal is always what they see as something good in the end. In the movies, you always see the bad guy, or often you see the bad guy explaining why what he's doing, that James Bond or whoever the hero is, is trying to stop. Whatever the bad guy is doing, he's doing it for some perceived good, whether it's his own ill-gotten gain or he's trying to do some kind of greater good for the world, but he doesn't see See why it's an evil to get to that greater good. So badness for the sake of badness doesn't quite exist. And so C.S. Lewis continues by saying, the badness consists in pursuing them by the wrong method or in the wrong way or too much. I do not mean, of course, that the people who do this are not desperately wicked. I do mean that wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. 
Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness, and there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. I love how he talks about there that he's not justifying their behavior. He's not saying that it's okay to do evil because the end is good. He says it directly there. He says, I'm not saying that people who do this aren't desperately wicked. It is wicked to do evil in order to pursue good. That's what makes it evil or badness as he calls it. And this is exactly why it isn't okay to say that the ends justifies the means which is a phrase you sometimes hear, meaning that the ends, what the goal is that you're trying to reach, the good objective, because that's good, it justifies small evils you might do in order to obtain that good. It's something that's commonly thought of, that even though, even though I might have to cut corners or do something that isn't exactly morally straight, upright, because I'm trying to do some kind of ultimately good goal, that's okay. And you can see this greatly in one of my favorite movies of all time, Kingdom of Heaven. And in this movie, the main character, Balian, he's a noble knight, an upright guy, and he has the opportunity to save the kingdom of Jerusalem if he will just betray his honor and have a man killed. And the man that he's going to have killed is the bad guy. Ultimately, this man will cause the overthrow and the downfall of the kingdom of Jerusalem. But Balian sees his own honor as something that is high, he has great integrity, and so he doesn't submit and he isn't willing to trick the kingdom and basically have this man killed. And his love interest, Sibylla, says, there will be a day when you will wish you had done a little evil to do a greater good. And in that scene, it's super powerful because she wants the man that she loves to do a little bit evil in order to save the kingdom, this greater good, and he won't do it. She wants him to have a ends justifies the means outlook and he wants to just be a good man so it's it's such a great example check out the movie if you haven't already it's very violent so maybe if you're young don't look at the movie but it's one of my favorites all that to say badness is just spoiled goodness i think that's an excellent way of summarizing what lewis has to say on the topic of what is evil so the next question after answering the broad what is evil you might wonder what is evil in the context of humanity and that begs the question how did we get where we're at where we experience this evil in the world so for that we're going to actually look at genesis 3 and i'm not going to read over the whole thing because for a lot of people you've probably seen or heard this before but this is the story of adam and eve in the garden and satan he shows up and he deceives the woman who then shares with the man and they both eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a tree that has been told to them by God that they should not eat of it. But Satan essentially says, you'll know good and evil. You'll be able to decide these things for yourself. You don't have to listen to God. And they fall for it. And so they eat the tree, they eat the fruit of the tree and sin enters into humanity. Some people have noticed that evil doesn't actually start with Adam and Eve. It's introduced by an evil outside character, Satan, or the serpent in this passage. And so a lot of people, for my whole life, honestly, until I started really looking to this topic, I only thought about evil entering the world through Adam and Eve. But the original evil, the one who introduced evil to Adam and Eve, was actually Satan. And so now we start to look at the question, how did Satan decide to be evil? How did evil come about in his personal life? So now we start to look at this dark power and we start to wonder, did God create it to be evil or did it become evil in some other way? Luckily, C.S. Lewis has some thoughts on this and he asks the question himself, how did the dark power go wrong? Here, no doubt, we ask a question to which human beings cannot give an answer with any certainty. A reasonable and traditional guess, based on our own experiences of going wrong, can however be offered. The moment you have a self at all, 
there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God. In fact, that was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. This is how Lewis explains the fall of the dark power, and thus the fall of humanity. Essentially, it's pride, putting yourself first, putting yourself in the place of God. This seems to be from church history, tradition, and scripture, how we believe Satan fell in the first place. He became too big for his britches, as people in the South might say, and he decided to overthrow God himself. And that attempt is what caused his fall, and therefore his attempt to bring everything else in creation into chaos. The fall of the, a third of the angels and the fall of humanity, all into this dark realm, which is now in rebellion against the one true God. It's very significant that Satan taught this sin of pride to the human race. C.S. Lewis continues here in this quote where he says, What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This is how Adam and Eve fell. Primarily, they decided not to trust God and eat the fruit that they were told not to eat. Secondarily, what this means is they put themselves in the position of God, deciding for themselves, deciding to grab for themselves the knowledge of what is good and what is evil and act upon their own knowledge, which is obviously imperfect. This is the tragedy, us trying to find something other than God, which will make us happy. Ultimate happiness is only found in God. So, but what else do we look for? What is that for you? A great way to tell is where you spend your time. Alternate gods that you may be looking to for happiness could include your phone, could include significant others or work or financial well-being, all of which are good. But again, if not pursued properly, if not pursued the right way God intended, the ends do not justify the means. The good of family life, the good of being financially stable, the good of having luxuries like a phone, if not pursued wisely and properly, they ultimately are evils and idolatry. I know that we all have ways that we look to things other than God for ultimate happiness, but that leads us back to the original question. If this is the reality we're experiencing, a reality of evil that Satan introduced Adam and Eve, who then birthed it into all of us, and we're just kind of stuck, how could God let this happen? How could he do it? If he's good and all-powerful, how could he allow evil to just completely pervade our lives? Luckily, C.S. Lewis has thoughts on this as well. He continues, and now we're getting into chapter three here, by the way, book two, chapter three. Want to comment on that in case anyone's following along. But he says, Christians then believe that an evil power has made himself for the present the prince of this world. And of course, that raises problems. Is this state of affairs in accordance with God's will or not? If it is, he is a strange God, you will say. And if not, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? So this starts to introduce the problem. Is God a very strange God who wills evil somehow despite being completely good? Or does evil exist outside of his will, meaning that he isn't all-powerful? He isn't able to actually control everything that's going on because this evil that has been brought about is outside of his control. This is the problem that Christians have to answer, and it's a good question. So it's understandable why this arises as an issue in, in our own hearts when we experience evil, but also in the objections of atheists who 
have their own issues with the idea of God. God, as they would state it often, must either be negligent, not all-powerful, or not all-good. And for the Christian, none of these are very good options. We don't want to believe any of these three things. We want to say that God is caring, not negligent, that he's good. He doesn't have any semblance of evil in him, and he's all-powerful. He can do whatever he wants. So how do we square this? We'll start with a theologian named Thomas Aquinas, who lived around the 1200s AD, uh, the 13th century, in Italy. And he is a famous priest and theologian, probably one of the most famous, not just in his time, but throughout all of history. His work has been incredibly impactful for Catholic thought, Protestant thought, I guess not really orthodox, orthodox thought, because that was after the split between Catholics and Orthodox. But um, he his work, the Summa Theologiae, is just an incredibly powerful, essentially textbook for theology. And so we're going to look at what he has to say first about this problem of evil from Summa Theologiae question 49. And he says, as appears from what was said, the evil which consists in the defect of action is always caused by the defect of the agent. But in God, there is no defect, but the highest perfection, as was shown above. Hence, the evil which consists in a defect of action, or which is caused by the defect of the agent, is not reduced to God as to its cause. Now, I know that's a lot. The whole Summa is pretty wordy like that, but we can break this down a little bit. He says, evil is a defect, which is what, I mean, C.S. Lewis has already kind of talked about that badness is spoiled goodness. Evil isn't a thing in of itself. It's just goodness gone wrong. It's spoiled. And so evil is just a defect. The defect of an action, a, a defective action, something evil, is caused by defect from the agent, the one doing the action. So evil only comes from defective people or beings. And because, as he's already explained elsewhere in the Summa, and we understand as Christians, God has no defect. Therefore, he can't be the one who's actually creating evil, the one that's doing evil himself. And this is backed up in scripture. God is not the author of evil, right? But where is this evil coming from then? If God isn't doing it, then where is it coming from? Didn't he create all things? We'll look to Lewis, back at Lewis again, for the answer to this. And luckily, he puts it in layman's terms, a little bit simpler than Thomas Aquinas does. He says, But anyone who has been in authority knows how a thing can be in accordance with your will in one way and not in another. It may be quite sensible for a mother to say to the children, I'm not going to go and make you tidy up the schoolroom every night. You've got to learn to keep it tidy on your own. Then she goes up one night and finds the teddy bear and the ink and the French grammar all lying in the grate. That is against her will. She would prefer the children to be tidy. But on the other hand, it is her will which left the children free to be untidy. The same thing arises in any regiment or trade union or school. You make a thing voluntary, and then half the people do not do it. That is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible." Now, can I just say that when I was playing with a teddy bear as a child, I was not taking books on French grammar. So whoever these children are that he's talking about are much more advanced than I was at their age. French grammar and teddy bears tended to not go together in my childhood. Anyway, that's a side note. I apologize. I get distracted easily even whenever I'm supposed to be doing something like this. Okay, so anyway, he explains here that something can be something that willed by God, but at the same time, not within God's will. 
which seems like a contradiction, but clearly it's not. Lewis Great gives the great example of a mother who wants her children to grow up to be their own person and to actually be responsible for themselves. And so in order for them to become responsible, she has to give them that responsibility. Her greater will is for her children to grow. She obviously wills that the room be kept tidy, but in order for that other will to be achieved, her her primary will of tight or her first will of tidiness must be kind of allowed to go to the wayside so that they can actually grow and develop. God creates humans like us with the ability to choose him. Adam and Eve started out with the ability to sin, even though they hadn't previously sinned. It was an option for them. They had the ability to not choose God. And after some period of time, there's been discussions on how long it was, they ultimately decided to sin and bring sin into the world. Each one of us were born with that defect, and we consistently choose to sin, choose to go against God, and choose our own priorities over his. This is what's called the free will answer to the problem of evil, that God so so values free will in the people he creates that he gives that priority over the ability to have a world without any evil at all. He sees it worth it. Free will is more important to him than a world without evil, and so he allows for evil to exist for the sake of free will. Some people would stop right there, and if that's good enough for you, great. It is a good answer, but there have been some that have pointed out it doesn't quite fill in all the gaps. It could be conceivably possible for God to create a world where people freely choose only good ever. And honestly, that's kind of the state in the garden. If he had never put a tree of knowledge of good and evil there, then they would have continued to have the option to sin, the free choice to follow God or to not, but there was really no opportunity for them to have an option other than God, so they would have just carried on happily, continuing to choose God freely. So it doesn't quite fill in all the gaps, and actually Aquinas wouldn't stop there. He wouldn't say that just free will being more important than evil is ultimately the best answer. He takes it a little bit further. So we're going to turn back to the Summa, part one, question 22, and see what Thomas Aquinas has to say. If all evil were prevented, much good would be absent from the universe. There would be no patience of martyrs if there was no tyrannical persecution. Thus, Augustine says, Almighty God would in no wise permit evil to exist in his works unless he was so almighty and so good as to produce good even from evil. This is a tough answer, but it's true. There may be some small goods that can be done in a world without evil, but most good things, most good actions that we see and we praise are done only because there is evil in the world. Healing, for example, giving healing or help to someone can only be done if harm has been caused already. Redemption, the idea of buying back someone from slavery or from some kind of debt that they owe. That redemptive act can only be done if a debt is owed, if sorrow is there, if pain, if if shortage of funds is there. In this case of, of Thomas Aquinas, he talks about the patience of martyrs and the way that the church looks to the martyrs as examples of godly patience. That only takes place if there is tyrannical persecution. So these greater goods could never come about in a world without evil. And Augustine, as he's quoted by Aquinas, there's like levels to this quote, says, Almighty God would in no wise permit evil unless he was so good as to produce good even from that evil. And I would argue a greater good than could be produced otherwise. Imagine a story without conflict, without evil. Lord of the Rings with no Sauron, no ring. Star Wars without Darth Vader. 
Harry Potter with no Voldemort. There isn't a story there if there is no evil. We also find this in Romans 8 when it says, We know that for those who are called according to his purpose, God works all things together for good. There's this concept even in scripture of, hey, evil is going to happen. This world is fallen. This world has sin and evil in it. But God is working behind the scenes through us, through angels, through everything in his creation in order to bring about a greater good in the end. So we've gone through, we've actually at this point answered all the questions that we talked about at the beginning. Let's take a look. What is evil? Question number one. Evil is spoiled goodness. It's not a thing on its own. It's goodness gone bad. Where does it come from? In our experience, Adam and Eve. But beyond that, Satan, not God. He's not the originator of sin or evil. Finally, number three. Why does God allow it? Well, we are free to choose evil, which is a good answer. But beyond that, God is going to produce good even from evil. And in the end, we'll look back and see the story that he painted and how there are things about him and about his world that we could have never experienced if evil hadn't been brought about through creature's will. I want to say here, I want to admit here at the end that this argument from C.S. Lewis and Aquinas, it's mostly a logical progression. It's up here. It's a thinking argument. It doesn't really meet the heart the way evil does. The problem of evil is a hugely emotional problem for all of us, especially those who have experienced great evil in their personal lives or experienced some great loss recently. Those are the times where even the firmest of believers may start to question their faith and wonder, man, if God is so good, like I've believed, how can he allow such an evil thing to happen to me personally? And that kind of personal thing isn't often touched by a logical argument like what we just went over. And this is where I love what the late Timothy Keller says in his book, The Reason for God. I first encountered this statement that he made in a, I think it was a sermon that he had online. And then I found it in the book and it just really spoke to my heart. And so I wanted to share that with you. Now that we've gone through the logical argument, I want to do something that, at least for me, touched my heart, touched my emotions and the way that I feel about the problem of evil, as opposed to just the way that I think about the problem of evil. He says, if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? And we look at the cross of Jesus. We still do not know what the answer is. However, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. I love this because he explains this doesn't exactly give us all the answers. That belongs to God alone. But what it does do is it starts to negate answers we might be tempted to think of. We might be tempted to think that God is indifferent. We might be tempted to think that he's detached from us and he doesn't really care. And that's why evil happens. But in a time of strife, the gospel, the story of Jesus teaches us that he isn't indifferent. He isn't detached. The picture that comes to my mind is as someone who used to play video games all the time. Whenever my character in a video game died, I didn't care. And that's because it didn't have any impact on me. I was detached from it. Sure, I would just load up the game again, maybe start a new character and keep going. It really had little to no impact on my life. But if I was playing a video game where every time the character experienced pain, I experienced pain myself, my level of care for how I treat the character that I'm playing in this game would be so much more in-depth, so much more careful, so much less negligent. I wouldn't be jumping off cliffs trying to get to some power-up far away. I would be way more hesitant because I would experience pain myself. I would have skin in the game. And this is a foolish example compared to what Jesus did of actually being born in human flesh, experiencing torture and death himself. 
And so that story of God himself experiencing the pain that we experience tells us that there must be a reason behind it. He's not indifferent. He chose to experience it himself. And if that's the case, he has skin in the game and he must really care about this world and must have a really good purpose for the evil that we experience. Search the gospel for who Jesus is and what he did. That is the answer that isn't just in the head, but that will speak to the heart. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a like and subscribe. If you want to reach out to me, you can either comment on this video, you could reach me at myapologiespod on Twitter, or you could join my Locals page where I have a community being built and we can communicate there. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my name is Stephen Cram, and this has been My Apologies. My Apologies.